My friends in the Pentagon and in Washington are afraid. Their, their, their hearts are consumed by fear. Their imagination can't imagine a world where free people can actually win. Um, if you come here for just a few days, you will, you know, I think once you, once you cross that line into Ukraine, uh, that's where your fear meets your courage. And, uh, and, and everyone else, everyone gives each other courage here by being calm, by being cheerful. Uh, and, 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 and that's, so if you're afraid, come here, uh, and, and you, you will find this new courage. Welcome to the Agents of Innovation podcast, where we feature conversations with entrepreneurs, philanthropists, and artists. Okay, welcome back to the Agents of Innovation podcast. Hard to believe we're at episode 130 now, and uh, I've got my good friend Joe Lindsley coming here from Lviv, Ukraine. Uh, Joe, welcome to the Agents of Innovation podcast. Cisco, great to talk to you. And uh, yeah, it's been a while, so uh, we can have uh, we've had many adventures in the past. And uh, yeah, hello from Lviv. And I, I, I've been here every single every single day of Russia's full scale war, and before that, since the pandemic. Uh, so I'm happy to have this chance to share some stories. Well, we're grateful that you're with us, and grateful with the, for the work you're doing over there. Just to properly introduce you to the audience. Joe is a U.S. citizen and an American journalist uh, currently in Ukraine. He's, he's right now in Lviv as we're talking. And we are on, I think, day 565 of Russia's war in Ukraine. Um, and so it's uh, Joe's been there through all of it. He's even been there well before. Um, and, and we're going to get into some of that. Uh, but he also runs uh, Ukrainian Freedom News. Uh, you can find it on YouTube and Instagram and Twitter. And, and I try to keep up with Joe every day. He puts out a lot of content. But what's great is you got a new station out of Chicago, I think WGN, uh, that actually has a 10-minute report uh, with you directly every single day. And it's really great to get the updates. Honestly, Joe, uh, you know, there's a lot of critique about media these days and the news media in particular. And it's just great when you can get a really fresh perspective on the ground there in Ukraine. And I I enjoy getting my updates and my perspective of Ukraine uh, in, a, in many ways from you, a trusted friend of over 18 years. And I should, I should also mention to the audience that uh, I first met Joe when he was uh, on the campus of the Fighting Irish University of Notre Dame. I was working for an organization, Intercollegiate Studies Institute, which helps support a lot of independent newspapers around the country, including the one that Joe, I think you started, right? The Irish Rover? That's right, yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, so I got to meet Joe and he's, uh, from the, from the moment I met him, I could tell he was quite a character. And, uh, and then, uh, I, maybe a year or two later, he came and worked for, uh, the intercollegiate studies Institute actually ran the collegiate network, um, uh, office there, uh, working with hundreds of student thousands, actually of student journalists all over the country. Uh, and, um, anyway, Joe, I know you went on to work for publications like the weekly standard. You worked for Fox news, you worked for Roger Ailes. You had a, a lot of different uh, stories. So, Joe, let's go back to the you're, – you're now in Ukraine, but let's go back to the beginning. And just uh, how did you get involved in journalism? And, I mean, I told a little bit of the story there, but maybe you can give us some highlights of uh, some of your early journalism career and what, what drew you to, to this field. Yeah, and Cisco, I, I think that – I mean, that's connected to why I'm here now. And as we'll probably discuss uh, in, in this conversation – so many of the Americans and foreigners I've met here in Ukraine 
uh, whether they're military veterans or they come from some other walk of life, they're here on some kind of redemption mission. Uh, and I think uh, I got I got stuck here in the pandemic. I flew here in March 2020 uh, to give a lecture at Ukrainian Catholic University about media uh, because uh, Showtime had just released a TV show in which Russell Crowe played my old boss, Roger Ailes. Some other actor played me. Uh, and, uh, and so and I, that's why I was traveling the world. I didn't want to be in America. Uh, I mean, they, cause they were telling personal stories of my life. Uh, Hollywood was telling it. So not entirely accurate. Uh, but I just wanted to get away from all that. So I was traveling around the world and I came here in March, 2020 to, uh, to give a talk, uh, the journalism program at the great Ukrainian Catholic university here, uh, invited me. And then, uh, a week later I was sticking around just to check out the country. And a week later, the borders closed for the pandemic. And I said, I think this is going to be one of the freest countries in the world during the pandemic. And it was. And, uh, and so I stayed. And then when, when, when the rumors of war began, uh, I said, you know, there's a reason why I'm meant to be here. I know this country so well from the two years of the pandemic. Uh, but also, I think as a journalist, and, you know, I, I was always a journalist. I mean, I, I was always a writer growing up. And everyone always told me I was a writer. Uh, and, but I was, I was very political and polemical and angry and I had this incredible angry energy. And so when I was working at the weekly standard, which by the way, is the, you know, that's a magazine, uh, you know, Bill Crystal, uh, who's a men- has been a mentor to me, but you know, they were the ones that started the wars and I, they pushed, they were one of the loud, most prominent voices for the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, which I ne- reject along with so many of our friends who, you know, who served in the military and, and, and worked in Washington, uh, we began to reject all this. Uh, and, and, and this is why, you know, as, as I sit here in Ukraine, so much of the American opposition to Ukraine uh, is, is because they're tired of those long wars and they're skeptical of the government. And, and so I have a unique view to that because I came from that world. I was mentored by these people uh, and then ran away from it. But when I was uh, in that world of the Weekly Standard and uh, Cisco, as you mentioned, the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, uh, Rupert Murdoch's consigliere found me. He gave me the Godfather blessing. He put his hands on my forehead and he said, "My son, you're going to run the company one day." Uh, I was 23 when when he told me that, and uh, he said, "Just follow my instructions." And I was from that moment pulled into this crazy life. And uh, they brought me to New York. I met Roger Ailes, the founder and chairman of Fox, who a guy who helped get uh, Nixon elected and Reagan and George H. W. Bush. He prevented a lot of people from ever becoming president. Uh, that's probably the biggest power he had that no one talks about. Um, but I went to meet him, and uh, he hired me. Uh, there was no looking back. I didn't even have time. I mean, they sent people to pack up my apartment uh, back home, and, um, and uh, my whole life has transformed. Uh, ostensibly, I was editor-in-chief of a couple of local newspapers that he had purchased, but, but the, the, the secret mission, he was teaching me how to run the company. And uh, after a couple of years, I realized I had to get out of there. Uh, and the, the show, the Showtime show kind of does, you know, so, sort of does a pretty good job of showing that, but, uh, it's like the mafia. I, I realized I was becoming, uh, not the person I wanted to be. And this wasn't the, they were not practicing journalism as I believed it to be. Uh, and they were not seeking the truth. They were not interested in that despite all the power that they had. And so I told Roger, I quit, but he said, you can't, it's like the mafia. He said, you know, you know, you know, all of our secrets. And so I escaped. Uh, in a car chase to the Hudson Valley, and that brought me in a long saga. And there's so many other storylines from there, but um, uh, amazingly, uh, I ended up here in this time uh, in Ukraine, 
And, and I think, you know, now we have voices like Tucker Carlson and, and even Elon Musk and others, you know, from these circles that I was involved in uh, who are so critical of Ukraine. And what I see mostly is like this is, and, and, you know, the name of your podcast, Agents of Innovation. This is uh, an incredibly innovative society. This is the Texas of Europe. This is the freest country I've seen in any of my travels. Uh, and every American I know who comes here, whether they're conservative or liberal, uh, says they never have felt freer. You can have free speech. You can talk about whatever you want. You can debate things. Uh, and they also feel happier and even safer here. You know, as long as there's no missiles coming down from the sky, the cities, the streets are safe. Uh, and so, so I, I think because of that crazy experience I had and the circles I was in uh, and, and being close to people who are some of the leading voices against Ukraine, um, while also being close to the people who were the leading voices for war, like Bill Kristol, and I say I reject that. I reject what happened in Afghanistan. I mean, I, you know, uh, and and but but this is different, uh, and that's why I've seen. I have uh, friends here who are American veterans. Uh, they, they served in Afghanistan, and one of them uh, he sums up what a lot of them say. But one of them put the put it most eloquently. He said after he served in Afghanistan, he couldn't sleep at night when he was back home in the states. Uh, and and I had a similar. I mean, after my time with Fox, I. I I, 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 you know, I was, I was sort of very depressed about the state of American discourse and uh, American uh, polity. And my friend who served in Afghanistan said the same. And when he saw what was happening in Ukraine, he came here. He said, this is clear good versus evil. This is actually good versus evil. Uh, and, and, and it's not all talk. You know, we, we have to act. And, uh, and so here, I think like so many, I see this as, even though I was accidentally here, I see it as redemption. And that, but this is why I've stayed. It's redemption. Uh, Cisco for all everything I was doing before, which is like living in the world of great power and great talk, but never actually examining, you know, n n never being courageous enough to say, if we believe these things, you know, how do we need to change America? Uh, and, and, and we talk, we talk about freedom so much, uh, but we never, I didn't know what freedom was, I think, until I came here to Ukraine. Yeah, no, that's, that's true. Um, well, Joe, there's a lot there uh, to unpack. <laughs> Um, one of the things I want to go back to, first of all, I want to just remind the audience who's watching and listening. People have all sorts of views on this war. You, you mentioned them as well. So um, how, who, whoever's listening now, um, uh, I just want you to know or watching, if, if you're watching, and this is also on YouTube, um, you know, what I'm really trying to do is help you understand Joe's story here and an American journalist in Ukraine. And maybe this will give a better perspective of what's going on. And Maybe it'll help in, inform your views, um, but I but I do want to thank. This is going to be a I think a conversation for everybody involved, uh, no, no matter what your perspective on the war is. Um, but Joe, you you talked about Ukraine. You have a very love, a very good passion for Ukraine. You didn't go there for the war. Now, my my understanding is when was your, when was your first time ever visiting Ukraine? Uh, I came here in, in 2018, and I was, I was traveling to Europe. Uh, it was after Anthony Bourdain died, and I was inspired by his example. And uh, I said, I'm just going to take off and travel and, and really see the world. And it's, it was part of my rehabilitation after leaving Fox. Like When I was there working on Avenue of the Americas in New York uh, for Roger Ailes, again, we had so much power. You know, I'd have any given time, we'd have dinner with, you know, former presidents like George H.W. Bush or crazy characters like Chuck Norris. It was a weird life, but we were so disconnected from actual people. 
And I, I didn't I, I didn't know this when I left. I knew something was not right about it, but only in my wanderings around America and then the world did I begin to actually do the work of a real journalist, which is to listen to people, to listen to their stories. Uh, before it was all, here's my worldview, which I want to impose on others. Uh, and it was through the traveling that I, I, I began to listen. So in 2018, when Bourdain died, I said, you know, I haven't done enough travel. I, I, I really need to push myself. And I booked a one-way ticket to, uh, I ended up in Istanbul somehow. And my travels brought me to, uh, among many other places, to Kiev. And, you know, I always had a negative connotation. Uh, you know, it must be some gloomy former Soviet city. I arrived in a beautiful summer day, the fountains in the square where they had the revolution in 2014. It was an absolutely beautiful, inspiring place, energetic people. And so I was immediately captivated by it. And, uh, and, and that started some connections here. And then in, uh, I guess I came back in, um, in 2019, the last year of free travel before the pandemic. And uh, I, it was a, a, an accident, really. I was hiding in the Caucasus Mountains of Georgia when that TV show came out. I really wanted to get away from everything. <laughs> and I had some American friends uh, who you know as well, uh, two brothers. They were looking for their roots in Poland and Ukraine, and they invited me. And I was, I was broken, uh, really, because that, that, that show was showing uh, you know, a, lot, a large part of my life. Uh, but for what? You know? And where is my career as a journalist or as anything? It was all gone. And, uh, and so my friends invited me to, to meet them in Lviv, and I did. And there were journalists here. Uh, they'd made an amazing uh, mo model of problem-solving journalism after the revolution of 2014. And the whole staff had just watched the show, the Showtime show, uh, The Loudest Voice, uh, about Roger Ailes and a little bit about me. And, and so they were, oh, we're so honored to have you here. And uh, you know, can, can you stay and work with us? And uh, so it, it was just a coincidence in a way that I was welcomed here. Uh, and, and so I stayed in touch with these journalists. And then I, uh, we were working on some education programs and, and really how to remake media. Like the media that I was escaping in America is, uh, which Fox was the best at uh, uh, at the time, was attention, media that makes its profits by stealing our most precious asset, which is our attention. And you know, we think we get all we think we get news for free, but it's taking our attention. And if you pay for something, you're going to get value. And so we were working on this grand experiment uh, to to shift the paradigm in media to media that gives people value rather than steals our attention. And uh, and I found good, energetic, innovative people here in Ukraine uh, to work with that on. And so I came back in uh, March 2020. I flew here from Stockholm. Uh, I thought I was going to be here for two weeks, Cisco, two weeks. and. Uh, uh, I gave a lecture and had some good, you know, good collaborative meetings. And then um, they, uh, the, the, the pandemic began. Uh, they closed the borders. I had a chance to, to get out. Uh, but I had a hunch that, that everything I had seen of Ukraine at that time, that this was going to be a, a free and pleasant place, as it was during the pandemic. Not only, I mean, there were restrictions here and there, but the main thing about Ukrainians is that they do, Ukrainians um, govern themselves. And, uh, and there's always this dance between the government and the people, but in a way that I think, and this is a story that gets missed in the, in, in the coverage of Ukraine, of Russia's war on Ukraine uh, in the States and in the UK and throughout Europe, uh, because much of the media and like the BBC and Reuters, like they come here and they tell, they, they do a pretty, they do a good, great job of telling this, the stories of Russian atrocities. Um, they, they do a pretty good job. I mean, they still... They always call this the war in Ukraine. They never say Russia's war in Ukraine. Uh, they could be. Mm. They could be more accurate. 
Uh, but they do a pretty good job of telling the stories of the atrocities. But what they miss uh, is the stories of how radically free and family-centered and community-centered Ukrainians are. Because, you know, we know the story. You know, I mean, the, the, it's, we have the different worlds in America. You have sort of the elite media and you have the regular people. Uh, and, and, and Ukrainians are, I mean, they, it's, if, if, if Americans knew individual Ukrainians, they would be so inspired by those stories. Because that, that's what I saw here during the time of the pandemic. Um, but, but with one major difference is that there wasn't, uh, even if people, you know, people always have differing opinions on things. And Ukrainians could argue with each other without hating each other. And uh, there never were massive street protests during the pandemics, uh, because I think the government knew, the government already knew if you locked people in their houses, like they did in France and, and other countries in Europe, that you would have a revolution. Like, there, there's that reminder of what happened in 2014 uh, that, that keeps the government more honest. Uh, and, uh, and so this is what I, I witnessed this during the pandemic time, uh, and how Ukrainians have this long experience through Soviet times and the times of the czar, uh, to be free of sort of, you got to be quiet about it, uh, but, but you can find the ways uh, to, to, to protect your liberty. And, uh, and so it was just simply a pleasant place. And uh, uh, in fact, uh, it was one of the few places in the world where there were music festivals in 2021. Uh, and there were amazing yeah. jazz musicians and blues uh, musicians from the, from the States, uh, including many black Americans who came here and they felt free here. And so we had this amazing society of uh, expats um, who, uh, who, who felt truly free, uh, in this country and, and welcome. Well, Joe, I just, you know, one of the things I really like about your, um, what, what you're doing with your coverage there is yes, we mentioned at the top here that you're doing daily reports back to Chicago about what's going on in the war and everything. But I mean, following your Instagram, following your, uh, some of the stuff you put on some of the other social media channels like YouTube and all that, um, you, you have showcased a lot of just what it's like to actually be there. I, I've seen you uh, show bands playing at pubs, like in the middle of a war, right? Um, people just trying to go on with everyday life, uh, even though it's not a normal time there, of course. Uh, but um, but the kind of resilience of the people and also uh, just, again, uh, I think it's a little bit emblematic of that kind of freedom that they had before the war. Now, you know, when you talked about they were a, a people that really appreciated freedom and had a lot of civil dialogue. Um, you know, we miss a lot of that here in the United States and in the West. I think in particular the United States, where just, there's so much, uh, you know, you believe one thing and, you know, you're just the other, somebody with a different opinion just hates you for it, not just hates what you said, but hates you, right? And we, we really need to get back to that appreciation for free speech and tolerance. You know, people say, oh, you know, they're so tolerant, but tolerance is when you, are are able to tolerate a viewpoint other than your own, not a viewpoint like your own. Right. Um, so, um, but but anyway, Joe, back to um, you know the uh, the time there in uh, what is? Can you give us a little history? How long ha has Ukraine itself been a country or a sovereign territory? Um, I mean, go back. Well, before, because I'll, I'll know, I know after the Soviet Union broke up in the early 90s, um, there was a period there, but also a little bit before. Where, where does Ukrainian history go back? And, and maybe it's even broader history than, than a simple sovereign nation and territory. But how do the Ukrainian people, I know there are some um, elements of their culture and history that are tied in with some Russians. Um, are there different ethnic people in Ukraine? 
um, how, how do they see themselves in terms of uh, their own their own culture and, and society and history? Yeah, well, and, and I th- Francisco, I think a lot of this question, I was prepared to begin to understand this history as an Irishman, you know, Irish American, but with deep connections to Ireland because uh, there's, there's strong parallels between you know Ireland before uh, before they were conquered by the British or the English uh, in, uh, in in uh, really starting with uh, Henry VIII, uh, they, they were a collection of different kingdoms and and and, and tribes. Uh, they were, they were, there was no uni- unified Ireland before, uh, but then for several hundred centuries, they endured, you know, their, their, their language was banned, their religion was banned, uh, the, 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 the occupiers did everything they could to destroy uh, the culture. And it's the same story uh, in Ukraine uh, for, for, for several hundred years, especially going back to, um, to you know, the, when, so they, they, the Ukrainians traditionally called uh, the the fields like the the wild steppes in the, which are in the middle and eastern Ukraine that was the heartland of the Kozak people they called the the Kapoli the wild fields and these were sort of the people who were trying to avoid being it was the wild west in a way they they didn't want to be governed by empires uh, to the west you know eventually in Poland and Austro-Hungary or in the east uh, uh, by by uh, you know the, Mos- the the Mongols invaded many times. Um, and, and then eventually uh, Muscovy, the Duchy of Muscovy, which became Russia. And uh, so this was always the wild, uncontrollable people. Uh, Catherine the Great, uh, the, the empress who was born in Germany, uh, by the way, who was a hero of Angela Merkel. She, even when she was chancellor, she kept a picture of Catherine the Great, the Russian empress, on her desk. Important hmm. thing to note. But uh, she, did, she did a lot to try to control the Cossacks uh, and to stamp out their freedom. Uh, the, the, but the Cossacks had... Uh, this sort of Catherine the Great, like a, right? Not, <laughs> yeah, Catherine the Great, yeah, yeah, and um, and the the Cossacks were because they they were they were actually not only they, they had this like natural system of some would call it kind of an anarchy, but it was you know based on families and communities governing themselves, and then you have sort of your military hierarchy to to protect you, uh, but it was always very democratic. The hetman, the leader, was elected, and in 1711, the Cossacks had a constitution. Was separation separation of powers, and you know I studied political and constitutional theory under some of the great the geniuses of the West, uh, Guillermo O'Donnell from Argentina, Walter Nagorski uh, at Notre Dame, and others, and and I had never ever heard of the Kozak Constitution of 1711, which actually had taken ideas from uh, similar ideas to Montesquieu uh, with the separation of powers, uh, but the Russians uh, stamped all of that out, uh, just as the English were doing uh, in Ireland. But even before that, if you look at uh, the name Russia, Rus, the Rus people come from what is now uh, the area around uh, Stockholm in Sweden. Rus in uh, the ancient Nordic languages means the rowers, uh, you know, the people rowing, the Vikings rowing in the longships. And in the Finnish language, uh, they still call Sweden Rotsi. They preserve this, this ancient name uh, in the name of Sweden. Uh, and so the Rus people... Uh, traveled down through what is now the Baltics and then Belarus and then down to Kiev. Uh, Ki was one of these uh, Vikings. Was There were three brothers and a sister in the legend. And, uh, and so the, the Kievan Rus uh, were these Viking uh, migrants, and then they you know, merged with the local people, as you, happened in many parts of Europe. And, and then, they, and then they, they, sort of, they established Kiev as a great metropolis. It became uh, that's where the Slavs first became Christian uh, under Saint um, uh, 
uh, uh, uh, Vladimir the Great. And, uh, and, and in fact, the St. Sophia Cathedral uh, in Kiev, uh, beautiful uh, uh, domed cathedral, was built about almost 200 years before Moscow was even founded. Uh, so Kiev mm. was the spiritual capital of, of Slavic Christianity and of the Rus people. And, and then they, but they had to contend with, you know, people coming from uh, left and right uh, to invade. And uh, Moscow uh, was established about 200 years later uh, after Sofia was built uh, by, uh, like, uh, you know, you, it's like Shakespearean story by a Kievan Rus prince uh, who couldn't be king, couldn't be the grand prince and ran off toward the east, made an alliance with the Mongols. Uh, and then it was about, it was about, it was in the 1600s when the Duchy of Muscovy decided that they need to be something more. They, they wanted more territory. Uh, and, and at that point, the, 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 the Grand Dukes of Moscow began calling themselves the Prince of All Rus. Uh, so th this was sort of this long history of Moscow trying to, um, and you saw this from other empires too, but in the, just looking at the case of Russia, but, uh, trying to control, uh, these people of, of what is, what is now Ukraine, really the Cossacks of the wild fields. And part of that, I mean, the resources are incredible here. The, the soil, the climate, uh, it's, it's so great for growing things. Uh, it's, it's just a pleasant place to live too. And, uh, and, uh, I think a lot of it probably also with the geography, it was, it was not easy to, uh, to, to, to con control and contain people here. Uh, so this was the history for centuries. And then, you know, Ukrainian nationalism uh, came about at the same time nationalism was, was happening, you know, in, throughout Europe. Um, in fact, uh, you know, it was in the city of Odessa, uh, which is an ancient Kozak uh, territory that Catherine, Catherine the Great built that city as part of her efforts to contain the Kozaks. But it was in Odessa uh, in the late 1800s that Jewish people began to gather to, for the, to work for the revival of the Hebrew language and to come up hmm. with the idea of, of, of restoring uh, Israel as a nation. Uh, and this is all part of that nationalistic movement. So as the Jews in Odessa, and actually in Lviv, too, were working on these projects, uh, so were the Ukrainians. Uh, and this idea, and actually the word Ukraine, uh, in Ukrainian language, Kraina means country. So, you know, United States is a Kraina, uh, France is a Kraina. Ukraine simply means, it's, it's a very unique name for a country. It simply means in the country. And, and I think that this is the idea. It's not even, because there are many different ethnicities within Ukraine. You have the Hutsul people in the mountains. Uh, you have the Crimean Tartars, uh, the, Odessan, uh, the, the Jews of Odessa. You have the, the Cossacks. Uh, the, 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 the connecting thing, these were people who wanted to live freely away from the empires of the East and the West, uh, freely to live their calm lives, uh, you know, attached to the land uh, with their families and communities. Uh, and that's, that's been the history of these lands. So it sounds like uh, what you just to end there, where you just ended there, uh, a P, is, it, is it that, you know, you have these sort of free people living in these, these uh, I don't know if you want to call them these sort of outer lands, you know, from, from, uh, from the clenches of empires and the empires kind of continuing to want to, to re reel them back in, in a sense, and, and, and have some kind of dominance over them. Yeah, I mean, that's been the history. I mean, a thousand years ago, the Mongols were invading here. Uh, they tried to, uh, there's a place where I go fishing. Uh, with a few times I have a chance to take a break. Uh, when I just want to get away from the sound of uh, shelling and missiles, uh, I go to the Carpathian Mountains, as do many Ukrainians, um, just to have some, some little peace. 
And there's a place where I go fishing uh, where, and swimming in the river and looking for mushrooms uh, where there was a great battle between the local people, the, the Ukrainians now, uh, but the, the Boiko people, and the, uh, as the Mongols were trying to invade. And there was a river, which today is called the River Opir for resistance. And, and, and they were able to stop. Uh, they, they, part of it's legend, probably, but they pushed a rock into the river and were, the, the, diverted the Mongols, and they had to go. Uh, uh, they, they could not cross through what is now this region of Ukraine. Uh, in order on their march toward to try to get to Vienna, and and so there's been a long history, and then, and then of course, you know, fast forward to uh, the 20th century, and uh, uh, actually today's the 10th of September, uh, in 1939, uh, in 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 the, this this same week in September 1939, uh, the, the the Nazis were marching toward Lviv. They ended up. Uh, uh, the Nazis were coming to Lviv, and then the Soviets arrived first. Uh, the city was under Soviet occupation and then Nazi occupation. And so the Ukrainians were fighting uh, both of those totalitarian, totalitarian regimes. Uh, and then when, when the Nazis were defeated, uh, Ukrainians were stuck in, in Soviet lands. And Lviv, for example, in Western Ukraine, uh, in, in briefly in the, like, after World War I, uh, Western Ukraine had been its own republic. Um, and, you know, because where I am in Ukraine in the West had been part of the uh, Polish Empire, Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Um, but finally, they got they got their independence for about 20 years. But then at the end of World War Two, uh, all of Ukraine was subsumed uh, into the Soviet hell. And, and you know, Cisco, it's amazing because I when I studied at Notre Dame and I got to know a lot of those conservative organizations like Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Fund for American Studies, Heritage Foundation, uh, and they did so much to teach us young college kids uh, about the history of communism and totalitarianism and why it's bad, and you know, never again, and the Holocaust, and never again, and you know, I, so often uh, when I was in university, we were flown to Prague and to Eastern Europe, Central and Eastern Europe. I met the heroes of the Velvet Revolution, and so I, I, I got to. I had the benefit of knowing like, just how awful communism was, but uh, what what's what, what's shocking to me is that all of these so you know conservative so-called conservative groups they're so they're quiet. Most of them are quiet about Ukraine when when they were the ones they've spent millions and millions of dollars allegedly reminding people of that history of totalitarianism, but they're absent when the fight is actually here for our time, and you know. When I was in Lviv during the pandemic, I, I had read a lot of the history of, of what it was like in the, I mean, this was the largest Jewish city in Europe until, until the Holocaust. And, uh, and, and I would often walk by the synagogue, the ruins of the synagogue in Lviv, and, and just recall that horrible history, uh, how so many were slaughtered here. And I couldn't imagine, everywhere you go around the city, you can see you know, little reminders of, of, you know, memorials or reminders of World War II. And in such a free city with music on every sidewalk and in every, ca every uh, piazza, every, uh, every uh, rinnick, um, uh, you, you, cannot, you couldn't imagine war in su such a place. Uh, it was so hard to think yeah. that that history could ever come back. And then I th would always think of the Soviet times. Uh, there's a cafe that's still in operation uh, called Armenian Cafe, Berminska Cafe. And in the Soviet times, the dissidents would go there to the philosophers and the poets 
uh, would go there to, to figure out how to challenge the regime. And I know people who, to, to, you know, who are still here today who were part of that resistance. Uh, and they would have stories about when the, when the KGB or the NKVD, uh, the Soviet secret police, uh, would try to round them up. And it was so hard to imagine that could ever happen here. But then on February 24th, 2022, you know, that, that, that was, I mean, that, that day I shudder even to think of it. We, you know, we didn't know what was going to happen. Most of the West thought Ukraine was going to fall quickly. I, I knew there was no chance the Ukrainians would give up. But we all thought that Russian tanks could be on the streets of Lviv within days. And, and Lviv's no all the way to the West. Yeah. Yeah, it's like 70 miles from Poland. And uh, we, we were bombed uh, early on and, and often since. Uh, but but, but you know, the Russian troops never got anywhere near here. But there was a fear of that that first day. And I walked around the city and it was a gray, it was a gray day. And um, it, it, was like, it was like I had traveled in time back to all these horrible stories I read from World War II. And everyone was ashen-faced. Everyone, I mean, people were, people were shocked, crying a little bit with each other, but mainly just shocked. And all of a sudden, I didn't have to use my imagination to, to, to understand uh, you know, what, what, what had gone on during those, like, especially with World War II here, because it was bad. And I think what you're also referring to, too, is here you are, you, you experienced this country in 2018 and 2019 and 2020 in 2021. I mean, for four years, four different years um, as a free country, you lived there for about two years before this war started. Uh, and uh, I mean, consecutively without leaving. <laughs> um, and, and uh, you know, just to see how it could go from a free country where people are doing what we all do every day, right? Going to the grocery store, going to the the pub going, you know, wherever, whatever you want to do with your day. And all of a sudden turning into a complete hellhole, a war zone, uh, just overnight. Um, Joe, also, when you were talking about that history, uh, so what, what happened to Ukraine? So, uh, after world war two, right, it became under the Soviet empire. And also, by the way, people should go to their maps. I mean, I don't know if enough Americans, uh, look at the world maps, but Ukraine is actually like a really huge geographic country. Um, it, it, it looks to me like if we think of four or five of the major countries of Western Europe, like France, Germany, Spain, Italy, probably put all of those combined. I'm not sure that they even add up to the size of Ukraine. Um, and so can you give us a scope of the geographic nature of Ukraine, one, and then also what happened to Ukraine uh, after the fall of communism? They, they came out of the Soviet Empire, right? So the, between that time of say 1991 to you know 2022, what's going on in Ukraine um, and in terms of their independence and, and everything like that? Well, the the size of Ukraine, I mean, it's the largest country that's totally within Europe. Uh, Russia's only partially within Europe, and and now you know it's excluded in many ways. But um, in the West, uh, you know, it's also culturally very different. So. In the west, you have the mountains in the southwest, the Carpathian Mountains, uh, very gentle, beautiful mountains. Uh, and then Lviv is um, it's an old world city. It's cobbled streets, uh, a lot of Austro-Hungarian uh, architecture. It was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and also you know, other empires. And uh, Lviv is a Greek Catholic city. Uh, so Greek Catholics are part of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, but they're Orthodox in style. They're, they have the the rituals of Constantinople uh, and, uh, and, and the chant. So it's very Eastern 
uh, but they're part of the Roman Catholic Church. And Lviv, uh, it's like a, I call it a Catholic uh, Istanbul because hmm. uh, every uh, when there's churches like every every other block, and they broadcast their choirs uh, into the little squares in front of each church, and so you just hear you hear this chanting uh, throughout the day uh, 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 throughout this city. Uh, but in eastern Ukraine, uh, so well, well, you know the the, the famous steppes and the, those amazing fields of Donbas, which I've traveled many times uh, in the war. Uh, it's it's a vast, you know, it's like it's like Middle America, like Iowa or something. A vast country of rolling hills, extremely fertile fields, uh, and amazing uh, minerals, uh, and, uh, and 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 incredible resources. But the the Soviets. Uh, Actually, under the czars, the Russians had begun to dominate that area, and then they continued to do so in the Soviet times. And in the Soviet times, they succeeded in destroying the culture and the religion, uh, as they did in Russia. Uh, and they did this also in eastern Ukraine. Uh, they couldn't do that in the West. Uh, people kept, you know, people lived underground. Uh, the Greek Catholic Church was underground. Uh, uh, by the way, the Greek Catholic Church, which had also rescued many Jews here, on, in, in World War II, uh, but they, they existed underground uh, in the Soviet times. Uh, and, and, and so the West, and you see this analogy I see with Ireland, like it was in the West of Ireland where people could maintain uh, their religion and their language. Um, so you, you saw this divide, uh, and as, you know, after 1991, with Ukrainian independence, uh, the, you know, you still had, I mean, most of Eastern Ukraine was speaking Russian. Kiev, everyone in Kiev was speaking Russian. Even when I went there in 2018, uh, you'd meet some young patriot, you know, young, you know, people interested, paying attention to, to what was happening, who were speaking Ukrainian. But everyone else, you go to a shop, every, you know, you get in a taxi, uh, you talk to older people, it was all Russian. And in the same way, uh, again, to look at Ireland, in the same way that in Dublin, uh, you know, the, most people don't realize this, like, the Irish language is totally different uh, from the English language. And uh, and so Dublin, they speak English because of the empire. And uh, in the same way, that in Kharkiv and Kiev, they speak Russian. And, and so this was the, as you did, you had tensions in Ukrainian society. Uh, people would travel to Lviv to kind of, it was a very popular intern, domestic tourist place because people would come here to get renewed in their culture. Uh, in Lviv, you know, <laughs> throughout the whole pandemic and now even in the war, uh, you go to the streets and people are singing traditional songs in like huge groups of people. Uh, and it's like it's a cultural heartbeat um, of this country. But now you start to see that everywhere throughout Ukraine. And what Russia's full-scale invasion did is it, it began to reawaken uh, this Ukrainian identity in a way that's never been, real, you know, never been uh, awakened and, and sort of solidified uh, before. Uh, if we look at 1991, you know, there was a famous Chicken Kiev speech. George H.W. Bush, with whom I had dinner a couple times in my crazy time at Fox, uh, Condi Rice wrote the speech, and it's exactly the awful type of elitism. I don't know if we can swear in this podcast, so I won't, but it's, it's an awful, we know better than you, you know, George H.W. who ran the CIA and uh, was, you know, you know, just, you know, part of the genteel aristocracy of America, uh, said, t told Ukrainians, you don't need independence. Stick with the Soviets. And not, not stick with the Soviets, because the, the, the communism was collapsing. Stick with Russia, yeah. Stick with Russia. And Ukrainians overwhelmingly 
uh, said, no, you know, this is the very thing we've striven for for, for so long. Uh, but in the 90s, it was very difficult here. And, uh, you know, it, I mean, it was, it was a Soviet mess, you know. Uh, and, uh, and then that's what Ukrainians in 2004 had their first Maidan. Uh, you could say the second Maidan. Maidan means public square. Uh, it's an old Persian word, uh, but it's in Ukrainian. And people take to the square and they demand their liberty. They did this in 2004. But uh, just to get, kind of get rid of the corruption, uh, but then they, you know, what they, they had a successful re- revolution and they got new politicians in, but then the old ways came back. So then in 2014, uh, the most, I mean, the, the Maidan revolution, and that's a whole other topic, but that is, it's up there with 1776 for me. It is the people peacefully gathered and organized uh, in the main square of Kiev and, and squares throughout Ukraine, uh, throughout Ukrainian cities, and they demanded that the corrupt government go. They said, flee to Moscow. The government was controlled by Moscow, and, um, and, and the revolution really took off when the secret police um, attacked uh, the, the original protesters, and, and then it, it woke up the entire nation. And, and when, no, what I year saw, was this? This was 2014. And, 2014, and, okay. And the winter, 2013 to 2014. And uh, a sign of, uh, of the success of that revolution, there used to be secret police in Ukraine, as there are currently in Russia. Um, they were called the Berkut. Uh, they ceased to exist after February 24th, 2014. Interesting date, by the way, uh, February 24th. Uh, they ceased to exist because mm-hmm. the Ukrainians succeeded in that revolution. And in fact, the first three weeks after the Maidan revolution, uh, the, 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 you know, the government had fled uh, and it was, it was, you know, the institutions were gone. There was no police and there, yet there was no crime. Every, everyone, every story, everyone I talked to about this, the Ukrainians controlled themselves so well uh, because they wanted this freedom. And, they know, and this is the lessons we know from our founding fathers in America. If you want to be free, you have to govern yourself. And so the Maidan story was that they weren't burning down the city. It's their city. They were just telling the corrupt politicians uh, to get out. It's not what we see in the protests in France or, you know, our protests in America. Uh, the Maidan was extraordinary. And then they be, people began to create civil society uh, institutions to tackle the corruption, most of which came from Russia, trying to control this country. Because the history was, for, for, for hundreds of years, you know, R- M- Moscow and others, by the way, were trying to plunder the resources of this land. And they could, because the Ukrainians were so free, they weren't organized enough to protect themselves. Uh, and finally, with the Maidan, and I think, you know, you're helped by, by technology and people's ability to communicate. Ukrainians became uncontrollable. And, uh, and even by the West. And I saw this during the pandemic. Ukrainians cannot be controlled. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. And in, in even most of the foreign leaders, um, when they speak about Russia's atrocities in Ukraine, they never talk about Maidan. Because I think they're afraid of Maidan. They don't want Maidans to happen in their country. Uh, one of the few people who appreciates it, uh, is Boris Johnson, who was here, uh, he was one block from me uh, yesterday. Uh, here in, he's more popular in Ukraine than he is in the UK because uh, people, you know, okay, they understand why people might not like him, but they love him because he's been a strong voice uh, for Ukraine. But he understands uh, this, or at least talks about uh, th- this wild spirit of, of, de- of democracy 
And see, no one in Ukraine, people complain about the government. They hate the government. There's even people, always, people complain about um, currently about the president. Uh, there's people who want a different leader for after, you know, after the war. Um, and uh, it's, but the, 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 this story is not about the government. Uh, in fact, the government, Cisco, the first three days, three weeks, the government was a total mess. It was civil society that defended their country. It was the people who took arms and protected themselves. Uh, and the government followed suit. And, and I mean, and, and Zelensky's been, you know, an amazing voice for Ukraine. But, it, but it, it's all about the people wanting to be free. That's it. Yeah. So, Joe, uh, going back there, so a lot of history there. And obviously, uh, you know, government corruption exists, I think, in every single government. Uh, just a matter of uh, checks and balances and terms of what kind of society you live in. And, and like you said, when you have strong civil institutions that can push back. But let's go back. You know, you um, you, you mentioned a few things. So I, I wanted to get a little bit of that history in terms of, you know, sort of where Ukraine stands in the world stage. Uh, what kind of led to this uh, Russian invasion and things like that. So you have here in the United States, and I, and I really don't want to get too, you know, into this whole political thing, but I do think it's important for listeners to understand and for and for you as a as an American journalist, right? To be, uh, I know you're fully aware. You you're, you pay you pay a lot of attention to uh, what people are saying back in the U.S., uh, including some of our fellow conservatives all over the spectrum on this. Um, but we live in the context of in in 2023 now, and and uh, and going back to the early days of 2022, right uh, when the war started, where you know in in many people's lifetimes. Uh, at least in our parents' and grandparents' lifetimes for us, uh, you had the Vietnam War, right? Which was a war, sort of a proxy war against Soviet communism and Chinese communism and all these things. And so, um, but after so many years have gone by, people look back and say, you know, we either made a lot of mistakes there or maybe we shouldn't have got it involved there, right? A lot of lives mm -hmm. that were lost um, and, a, and a war that ended poorly. You know, it did not end in an American victory. Um, but, uh, then you have in our lifetime, the Iraq war, uh, and the, Af the war in Afghanistan, we just saw a horrible ending to the war in Afghanistan, uh, after 20 years. And we've, uh, we got muddled in many different situations in Iraq, a lot of quagmires, a lot of should have, should we have been there? We didn't find WMD, you know, all these sorts of things. And now that we look back, a lot of Americans, I think today would say, Hey, we shouldn't have been there. We made a lot of mistakes. And uh, maybe the media kind of drove us there as well, alongside, you know, many politicians, uh, people <laughs> that you some, some of the people you mentioned as well. Um, and so now Americans are, are here in 2023 and they're asking, OK, well, there's a couple of differences first. And I think our viewers and listeners should understand we don't have any U.S. soldiers actually in Ukraine. Uh, we don't we're not actually directly involved in the war against Russia. Um, also Ukraine is not a member of NATO, at least not at this moment. And, uh, so we have no obligation to, to, to go there and defend them, but we are sending, um, lots of money, uh, U S taxpayer money. We are sending a lot of, uh, ammunition, weaponry tanks. You mentioned, uh, maybe some aircraft. I'm not sure if that's happened yet. Uh, and, and so a lot of U.S. taxpayers go, whoa, 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 we got a lot of problems in this country. Inflation's happening right now. There's a lot of economic problems. We, we are overextending ourselves. We shouldn't get involved in this. I think there's a lot of people that just are in the, 
let's just not get involved in this, right? And so there's those people. There are some that probably sympathize maybe with some Russian sentiments. You've seen Vladimir Putin and others try to get involved in the U.S. culture wars in some ways to try to tempt conservatives to kind of get on his side with some of those things that maybe the American left has has really destroyed. There's a lot of different things here. But um, one thing I, I met, you know, uh, I've seen as well is while, while Ukraine is not a NATO ally, it borders a lot of our NATO allies. Um, and so you mentioned, uh, you know, the other day I was watching one of your reports uh, right on the border of Romania, right? Uh, Poland, all these sorts of things. There's been a lot of, uh, a lot of warfare right very close to those borders. Um, so how, if, if, if talking to the U.S. public on this issue, how does this, uh, is, is this different? And how are we not going to look back and say, hey, we shouldn't have been involved? And secondly, um, why should we care about Ukraine winning a war against Russia? Well, first I'll say, you know, as Americans, we love the super, superhero movies. Uh, the movies about people standing for freedom. The new movies, Sound of Freedom, uh, or the Marvel movies. And we eat popcorn and we watch these films. And right now, you have people fighting for that freedom. And you, unlike any war in human history, you can participate easily. You can send money for a drone. You can just pay attention and read stories and convince people to support Ukraine. Uh, you can support the, the, the fathers and the farmers and the regular folk uh, who are standing for freedom uh, more easily than ever before. So even, I'll say first, if you're an American and you ever watch and enjoy a superhero, good versus evil movie, or the Lord of the Rings. This is the real life Lord of the Rings. In fact, Ukrainians call the Russians orcs every day. That's the name for Russians is orcs. Uh, and Ukrainians are sort of the hobbits. Uh, I mean, they are. When you see people dancing, even in wartime, you feel like this is, this is the Shire uh, versus the uh, you know, evil empire of Mordor. And, uh, and so if you, if you spend any of your energy caring about that stuff, I would, I would encourage you to at least divert some of the energy to understanding what's happening here. Uh, Ukrainian culture is, you know, so Ru Russian propaganda is very adept at uh, messing with our, you know, American psyche and our left-right distinctions and, uh, and, and, and sort of pitting us against each other. But Ukrainian culture is everything that Putin is trying to convince uh, American conservatives about Russia is actually true of Ukraine. Ukrainian culture is anti-corporate, it's non-woke. It's family-centered. Uh, they're fiercely free. They're also extremely tolerant, though, in a way that I think Americans were not all across the board. Uh, but this is a, a society where, I mean, there's no crime, I mean, extremely low crime. In Kharkiv, uh, 30 miles from Russia, uh, I, I spent there many months there. And when I was there in the winter, uh, every night from about 1 o'clock in the morning, we'd get bombed every other night. Uh, it was terrifying. But before that, uh, the city was totally dark uh, before the, uh, the missiles came flying from about 4 p.m. Uh, every night in the winter. And I would walk the streets in total darkness with my earbuds in, going to one of the few cafes that was open. Uh, and actually, there were a lot of places open, but everything was dark. And never for a second was I afraid. On the ground, everything is safe here. Uh, it was like this before the war, but especially now. Um, and I would never do that in an American city. I would never walk down dark streets. 
Uh, they've built such an amazing society here. And I keep saying this story because it's exactly what Russia's trying to erase. It's the, you know, it's using the Lord of the Rings uh, analogy. Russia's like Smeagol, intensely jealous of a nice society that they can't have. Uh, and, 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 and so they're trying to, I mean, they've erased Ukrainian cities like Mariupol and Bakhmut, uh, places that have become very lovely places to live. I was in Bakhmut uh, before it was deleted in, in, in uh, June 2022. Mm. Um, and they, they were making they were very livable, pleasant places. Uh, and, and, and so this is, Russian propaganda has succeeded in erasing this. And, you know, most of the Western media, uh, I mean, there's very brave reporters here, but they don't tell the story of what, ha- what it was before it was erased. They, they miss the cultural uh, cohesion here. Uh, also, uh, tolerance, too. I mean, Ukraine has a Jewish president, uh, a Muslim defense secretary, a Crimean Tartar. And, uh, mm. But it's still, it's, a very, it's an extremely Christian country. And, and it's, you know, kids uh, go to the playgrounds by themselves. Uh, it, it, it is this ideal thing. Also, the food is natural and healthy. My whole life, uh, I was on uh, allergy medicine everywhere I went in the world. It's gone. My allergies are gone in Ukraine. And I think it's a natural food. Uh, it's, you know, and it, it, even in Europe, you don't have that. Everything is corporate, profit-driven. And that's not the case in Ukraine. That's why the GDP uh, is lower here, uh, because the economy is with the people. And so, Cisco, this story line is totally missed. Uh, and it's the very story that if uh, American conservatives understood they would say, "Holy shit, we need to defend these people." You know, instead we're yeah. running. To okay, Hungary. so so uh, yeah. so Joe, other than the the fact that um, you know, it's it's we have it in our in our DNA in a way as Americans to want to come to the rescue of of people to defend their freedom. You know, we can't do that everywhere necessarily, right? Uh, we'll be fighting battles every everywhere on the planet, so we kind of got to pick and choose our battles. Um, we're again to reiterate, we're not in Ukraine uh, with American forces on the ground. We're sending them yep. uh, supplies, ammunition, weaponry. Uh, we're sending them money. Um, so American taxpayers want to know: Is it worth sending the money? The amount of money we're sending it sa- sounds like a lot. You know, lots of tens of billions, hundreds of billions that we've that we've sent. Um, why is what happens if Ukraine were to fall to Russia? Uh, what um, what would be the next step, the next logical move here on the world stage? And I'm going to ask that question, Joe. And then on the other hand, I'm going to also ask, um, are we provoking um, a, nu- a potential nuclear war by Russia? So two questions there. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, you know, there was a time here where I carried iodine pills because I would read too much news in the West and I would carry iodine pills in case of a nuke. Uh, but that's only because I was reading too much news from the West. And here you get a different type of courage. Uh, first, I'll say, I mean, everything I just described about Ukraine, there is no more free country in the world than Ukraine. And so uh, it's, you know, it's not that we're trying to defend like Iraq and Afghanistan. That, that was misguided. We were trying to create something that those countries didn't want. Um, and that's totally different. Ukrainians have given themselves democracy. So it's, it's totally different. Uh, it's not of the same kind. Secondly, United States, we promised under Bill Clinton, he apologized for this, but you know, much good that does. Um, the Budapest Memorandum, 
when Ukraine said they'll give up their nuclear weapons in 1994, the United States promised to defend them. Okay, there's that. Thirdly, the amount of money that is spent on Ukraine. You know, we hear like the Anthony Blinken the other day said one, one billion more dollars. This is Washington gamesmanship. Most of that money stays in America. It goes to American companies. It goes to USAID cultural programs. Uh, the, 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 uh, when it comes to the weapons, all of the weapons are old. And so the price, and, the, and, the, and when, we, when we hear the, the amount of money, it's a valuation of old weapons. That, you know, that's how much these weapons cost when they were purchased in the 1980s, the 1990s, or 70s. Uh, it's not new money. It's, it's just Washington trying to pretend that they're doing more than they really are. And they're, they're not so that's giving interesting. anywhere near. So, we're, so what you're saying is we're giving uh, the weapons that we're sending to Ukraine, um, we're sending those weapons, and then the, we're, the money we're actually spending is what, on, on new things for, for Americans? Uh, tell me, I'm tell saying me that, that distinction. The there. amount of money we're spending is, is not a billion or more. It's, 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 it's much less. It's uh, uh, like... So where's on, on so what money are the money that we're, the money that's leaving Congress the money that Congress is approving and the president is signing and there's actual yeah. real money where's that money going if it's not going to Ukraine? Uh, I mean, well, so, some of that money is to transport the weapons here. Uh, some of it is okay. for uh, uh, to get uh, build up defenses in in Poland uh, and other NATO countries. Uh, other things, I mean, the usual just the usual Washington. Uh, you know, like the $30,000 toilet seats at the Pentagon. Um, it goes to, uh, uh, like, uh, how do I be very delicate with this? Uh, I don't need to be. I'm in the war zone. But uh, uh, political, cultural, idea, movements supported by current administration. Uh, a lot of it goes to that, sort of those grants. Uh, but the bulk of the, uh, um, the, the, the military money is not new money. It's a valuation of old equipment. That's it. Equipment that we weren't using or that we were spending money to store. That's actually cheaper just to get rid of it. And, but, but they want to sound like they're doing a lot. And the, 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 the dirty secret is you know, the Biden administration and Sean Penn, by the way, the actor who came here, uh, you know, he said been aligned with many tyrants. But I think in Ukraine, he said an awakening. He's criticizing Biden now. He's saying the White House is doing not nearly enough. It's all talk. Washington uh, refuses to give Ukraine long-range weapons that can actually get, make victory happen. They want this to be drawn out. That benefits the defense contractors. It benefits politicians who can use Ukraine to uh, hide their other sins. They can talk about Ukraine while they do whatever else they want to do. Uh, and, and they're actually, I mean, if you just look at the history, I mean, okay, Abrams tanks were promised a long time ago. They're due to arrive in a couple weeks. At the same time, senior American officials are saying uh, Ukraine has one more month to prove itself in the counteroffensive. So why would the, the amazing Abrams tanks, why would you not send them at the beginning of the counteroffensive? Why would you send them when there's no more time left? It doesn't make sense. And, and if we really yeah. examine what they're saying in Washington, it doesn't make sense. And the, if you look at most Democrats support Ukraine, uh, they support Ukraine funding, but very few support long-range weapons or Ukraine taking back Crimea. 
the, the, but the, op- the opposition to Ukraine comes mainly from Republicans. But at the same time, this is the tricky thing, which the Putin propaganda uh, uh, exploits ex- extremely well. The only people, uh, ah, sorry, the only people in Washington who support rapid and quick victory for Ukraine uh, tend to be a few Republicans uh, who are very. Cr- Interesting. Well, Let's Joe, um, okay, we could get. Uh, can you hear me? I don't know what happened. Let's see. All right. I um, well, can you hear me now? I can hear you. I, yeah, it, yeah. Pause for you, just did, a second here. Okay. Did you hear? Did you did you hear music? Yeah. I no. I I didn't hear music. That was strange, man. You I hear heard music? music to, to just join the call. But um. Uh, anyway, so th- 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 this well, that, is the well, that's what thing. happened when you start talking about you know uh, the uh, the defense. Uh... <laughs> I mean, but, but this is the most delicate, and it's hard for Ukrainians to talk about it because they're grateful, of course, and like, the support that America has offered has made a huge difference. I mean, when, when the high Mars, the, the high mobility rocket launchers arrived in June 2022, and uh, up until. That June 2022, a new Ukrainian city was falling into Russian hands every week in Donbass. And the next city that was due to fall was Bakhmut. I was there at that time. And the high Mars arrived. And how long did it take for Bakhmut to fall? Eight months. Because of, in large part, because the, the weapons from America. But the other thing that Ukrainians have done, they've taken old weapons old drones, shitty Chinese drones, and they make them better. And now Ukrainians are showing Americans how to fight. Because we haven't won a war in a while, by the way. And Ukrainians are showing how to adapt in warfare. Um, the trench warfare, by the way, from all my friends uh, who are fighting, is worse than anything they've ever seen uh, in, in Afghanistan or anywhere else. It's, uh, it's mm. the only, time, only comparison people can make is stories that they've read about World War I. Uh, Wow. So Ukrainians well, are actually Joe, speak- making us stronger by, by showing us how to fight, how to use this technology and equipment, uh, and by testing it. Joe, speaking of which, you, you, so you, like I mentioned before, you, you've been there. Uh, you were there on a couple visits in 2018. You went there at the end of 2019, have been there ever since. But, uh, of course, the war didn't start till February of 2022. Um, so you chose to stay there both during the pandemic. Bold move, by the way, to stay in a foreign country in, uh, you know, right on the border of Western and Eastern Europe, I guess you could say. Uh, yeah, and, um, uh, you know, when, when there, the unknown was happening with the pandemic, both from a health perspective and a lockdown perspective, right? Um, but when you are there as well, you, you, cho- you chose to stay there, help build up this news organization. Uh, also bold move, I think, um, that alone, right? And then and then to do so and stay there in the middle of a war zone as a as an independent American journalist, you know, behind me on the on these uh, on this word here, uh, fearless journeys is the name of my company, right? It's the fearless journeys is all about helping people be emboldened on their entrepreneurial journey for the most part, right? So we help people build an entrepreneurial mindset. We also do some great group trips, uh, in some ways partially inspired by some of the group trips I've been on with you, and I'll, I'll mention that in a few minutes, but. Um, you know, as I, I was actually, I literally launched this company, Joe, in the summer of 2021. And uh, about eight or nine months later, I, I look over and I see that my friend Joe is still in Ukraine as this war is coming up. And I was like, I think I texted you and said, I hope you're okay. And I'm, I'm willing to give the name of this company to you now because <laughs> talk about being fearless. 
Um, so a lot of people, you know, that know, I know you, and we have a lot of mutual friends in common might say, is Joe crazy, you know, staying mm-hmm. over there. And, um, uh, you know, a lot of people might also ask what kind of courage does it take? And do you have the first four letters of that fear? Um, and how, and, um, how do you react to any kind of fear that you might have? How do you take that on being a journalist in a war zone? Well, I think we'll probably need a whole other uh, conversation for, for that topic. But the short, the short uh, look at it is, uh, uh, you know, every American I know, every foreigner I know who comes here to volunteer. Um, for, for example, there was there's this group called the Frontline Kitchen. And people from all over Europe and the U.S. and Canada and South America come and they make uh, food for the soldiers of the front lines. And in Lviv, and Lviv doesn't get attacked lately. It's not been so often. In the winter, it was pretty bad. Uh, and one night, uh, one morning, we had three Russian drones that flew Iranian-made suicide drones that flew over Lviv, and it was terrifying because they move slower than a missile. You can hear them coming toward you, but they're very small and hard to shoot down. And you could hear the frantic machine gun fire, and uh, it was terrifying. Uh, one of the drones hit a target. Two were intercepted, but the debris still still causes damage. And I went to, um, to that kitchen uh, a few hours later. I wanted to see if these foreign volunteers, like these grandma, there's a grandma from New Hampshire, you know, a couple from Germany, uh, young people, old people. Uh, and I wanted to see if they were still there. And sure enough, they were, had not slept. They were shaken and they were chopping the vegetables to prepare the food for the soldiers. They're not afraid. You mentioned the nuclear question earlier. My friends in the Pentagon and in Washington are afraid. Their, their, their hearts are consumed by fear. Their imagination can't imagine a world where free people can actually win. Um, if you come here for just a few days, you will, you know, I think once you, once you cross that line into Ukraine, uh, that's where your fear meets your courage. And, uh, and, and everyone else, everyone gives each other courage here by being calm, by being cheerful. Uh, and, 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 and that's, so if you're afraid, come here, uh, and, and you, you will find this new courage. And, you know, I mean, I've been two miles to Russia, uh, in a little village, uh, where we came under shelling. Um, I've been, I've been, uh, Russians fired upon us in Zaporizhia, uh, that haunts your dreams. Uh, but the, the most haunting dream I've had, the only dream that wakes me up in a panic is a dream that I'm leaving Ukraine because that I would leave this sense of purpose. Um, and every person I know here, uh, who comes from the West or the East around the world, uh, they find such purpose in their lives being here and such sense of connection and they feel happier here because they have purpose and they have community and we're all in this together. In some ways, I feel like we're in some big college campus and we're all on some project together. Everyone's got their aspect of the project to figure out how, how we solve this problem of the Russian tyranny. But, uh, this is, uh, it's an inspiring place, and, and, and that, is, that overcomes the fear. And I mean, the fear doesn't go away. I mean, every time I go east, or every time there's an alarm, or I, hear, I wake up to missiles, uh, yeah, you, you feel sick. You know, what, the, what the hell is this? Why is this country sending metal garbage you know, that blows up uh, into these cities? What, what is the point of this? Um, uh, and then all the, our friends who have, uh, you know, everyone here, we all know people who have lost life and limb. And, uh, yeah, you know, you know and it, so it, Joe, it, as an it, American, 
Yeah. As an American journalist that's over there and you you're um you're you're broadcasting daily and you're you're reporting mm-hmm. to people in Ukraine, you're reporting to people across the world. Um how have Ukrainians uh received you uh locally there as an American journalist? Uh well, I mean Ukrainians are uh they're they're so happy to have uh help and people from all over the world. Uh I try to speak Ukrainian. Uh and so pe- people really uh react well to that. I'm starting a new show with uh, Ukrainska Pravda, which is independent media. There's still a free press here, by the way. Uh, uh, Ukrainska Pravda, based in Kiev. Uh, Ukrainian Truth. It was uh, started to fight the corruption in the early early 2000s. And uh, we have a new podcast called Land of the Free, uh, in English, talking to Ukrainians uh, and foreigners here, uh, innovators, soldiers, uh, civil society leaders. Uh, uh, the people that would resonate with uh, the, you know, the, the the people that I meet as I travel this country, uh, a- actually every American I bring to Ukraine says that they're so inspired by every conversation here. So I want to share that uh, with the West, and uh, and so yeah, we have. I mean, th- this is, I think there's a, there's enormous solidarity. Ukrainians. I mean, right now today I'm wearing the traditional uh, Veshivanka Ukrainian embroidered shirt. Uh, and because uh, so, uh, on Sundays you tend to wear that in Lviv, and Ukrainians love it. Uh, I, whenever you know that to be Ukrainian, as many people say here, uh, it simply means you are a brave person or you are a free person. And so there really is a sense of welcoming the world here. And uh, on our team, we have many Ukrainians, and uh, you know we work to raise money for our friends in the in the front lines uh, to get them drones and trucks and whatever they need. So. Uh, yeah, I, I think that this is uh, the most, but it's not just Ukrainians. It's also the foreigners here. I'm surrounded by the most inspiring people. Uh, there, there was some academic who came here and he said, Ukraine can show the world what it means to awaken our souls. We don't have to live hmm. in this. We're always worried about some conspiracy. We're always in some dark, you know, we're scared of the police or we're scared of the FBI or we're scared of our neighbors. We're, you know, we, 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 we don't have to be controlled by corporations. Um, this is a, yeah, it's an amazing place. And, uh, you will even, as you see, as you mentioned, you will even find people, you know, music as you saw during the blitz in London, but you will find people singing and dancing, uh, even under missile attacks. Yeah. I bet that's probably got to give you uh, an interesting connection back into history and things that we couldn't understand until you actually see it. But, uh, uh, Joe, you know, uh, I I don't want to necessarily mention any names here, but I have a few friends that. Um, wanted to go over to Ukraine and cover some things. And, um, you know, once I, I realized they were going, I don't, uh, to be honest with you, I don't encourage any of my friends to go into a war zone right now. But, uh, but, uh, but for those that really, uh, that, that have that told me they were going anyway, I said, well, then I've got a connection with my friend, Joe. And um, I know you were very hospitable to several of them um, and put some of them to work for you as well. And, and in, made a lot of introductions but uh, one of them told me ahead of this podcast that I've got to ask you about a story uh, when a Ukrainian soldier took off hit one of his uh, badges on his shoulder and gave it to you uh, when he saw you in a restaurant. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, and that's I mean, the question. And that was the the same answer with the preceding question that this is how much they appreciate uh, people coming here and standing with him. And we were in Kharkiv. Uh, with a friend who's a prominent YouTuber. And uh, again, 30 miles from Russia, 
and Kharkiv is a place where people go in between battles, uh, uh, more or less. And uh, so we were talking with some soldiers, and uh, I knew friends that they're friends of friends, and um, they're so happy to have an American. So the guy ripped off his uh, badge, uh, his patch, and uh, and I gave it actually to our friend because I think anyone that has the courage uh, to travel all the way, take that take that wartime train. Uh, all the way to Kharkiv. Not many people do that. No foreign leaders do that. Um, Kharkiv is the center right now of free people in this world. And uh, and so just as that soldier was appreciative of me being there, uh, he didn't know what our friend was doing, but I did. And I said, man, you got to take this patch uh, with you. Uh, and, uh, and, and you know, each patch contains a story because in, you know, the guy that had that patch, he's back in the trenches and, and you know, and going through hell. So, uh, but mm-hmm. this is this is the sense you know, I had a, I have a watch on right now that was a gift from um, a Ukrainian warrior, and he'd been training in the UK. And I, I met this guy once. We were, I was, we were talking with friends uh, walking through Lviv, and um, he had just uh, been training in the UK, and Rishi Sunak uh, invited them to Downing Street before they came back uh, to the fight. And uh, it's sort of surreal to be on Downing Street and then in the trenches. Uh, and this Ukrainian said, oh, American, you're here to help us? I'll give you this watch that Rishi Sunak touched when he was promising us wow. uh, long-range missiles. Uh, you see that everywhere. People will. There's a great spirit of giving and hospitality uh, in the wartime because we're all in it together. Or like after a missile attack, uh, the other week I was in Kiev and we I think we were hit by 20 missiles. 20 missiles. I mean, hard to imagine. And um, missiles and drones. And the next day, everyone is under slap. So when you go to work or you go to the coffee shop, you're, you're, you're patient. You're, you're understanding of everyone because you know we're all in this together. So everyone's having a bad day. You know, everyone's going to screw up. And there's this amazing sense of understanding each other and helping each other through it. Uh, and so that idea of giving someone the patch is, is, is part of that spirit. Uh, well, Joe, I, uh, I got a few last questions here to ask you. I want to be respectful of time. I know we've got a little over here, um, but uh, I've been really enjoying uh, some of the stories here. And um, but, uh, you know, you and I share a passion for travel and, um, you know, we, we've been all around. You know, you talked about that story of, of uh, in 2018, 2019, you know, you were traveling a lot. You're also we also share a, a passion for writing uh, as well. And um so first of all, I just wanted to mention to a few people, a few of these group trips, because some people that know me know know about and that are listening here know all about a lot of my travels. And of course, now I, I, I run a lot of group trips as part of my company, Fearless Journeys. And um, but, you know, um, I, I kind of like sometimes I like traveling solo. Um, and then sometimes I like just traveling with maybe one friend or one family member or maybe like a small group. Um, and so, you know, getting on a, a larger group trip with maybe 10, 15, 30 people, sometimes that seems to me like, oh, I don't really know about that. But um, my mind changed a little bit on a, a trip that you ran in 2014 to Ireland with some friends of ours, that, the, the band Scythian, uh, which is actually interesting because the two brothers in the band have Ukrainian background. You had never been to Ukraine up to that point, uh, but they play mostly Irish music. And I discovered them, uh, and you discovered them when we were living in Pennsylvania and working in Delaware uh, back in the kind of mid 2000s, I guess. And uh, um, anyway, but you ran this incredible trip to Ireland where you have a heritage. And uh, my mom went on the trip with me, and there was about 30 people, I think, maybe more. 
I think it was a hundred like two... people, man. It was, it was, it was. Yeah, maybe we had yeah, something bands like that. Came with us. Yeah. And and we, yeah, we 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 the band played music all over the country, including I think at your uh, your grandfather's farmhouse, which was awesome. Yeah. But Joe, actually, it's funny because as I was preparing for this podcast, I forgot that right here on my desk, I still have this coaster <laughs> that oh, you guys wow. created that was from, from, from the, the great night at the. Uh... Uh, the lake house uh, on the yeah, Irish coast, the lake house. Uh, where my ancestors a hundred years ago fought for their freedom. Uh, you know, as uh, you know, everyone here is doing now. Um, wow, man, I, I, that that coast. Yeah, and then Joe, and then I believe it was in uh, 2018, April of 2018. Actually, uh, a really favorite trip that I, I mentioned a lot uh, that you led a group trip to Memphis, Tennessee where we went there to honor another moment of freedom in a sense, but a moment of, uh, of, of a down day in freedom, I guess you could say. And that was uh, the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King's assassination. Um, we got to enjoy so many great spots around Memphis, but honored. Uh, we were there at the National Civil Rights Museum when they rang the bell 39 times. And it's funny, when they rang the bell 39 times, I said, what are they ringing the bell for 39 times? And Someone said, well, that's the, uh, the number of years that Martin Luther King lived. And I remember, I don't know why, that was the first time in my life that was like, he was only 39 years old. Um, yeah. And yet we think of him like it's this hugely grand figure that feels like he lived 100 years or something. Um, but, uh, but that was 50 years from that point that he was shot right there at that spot that we were standing um, I had an opportunity the next day after the official trip uh, with our friend Ruth to go over to one of my favorite places, first time visit, only time visit was Graceland, uh, the huh. home of Elvis Presley. So huge Elvis fan, but it was it was a really great trip. And we heard uh, and Al actually, Green was singing. Al Green was singing uh, uh, at the spot where King was assassinated. Uh, that uh, yeah, Al, yeah, that, that was amazing. We we heard Al yeah. Green lead a lead a chorus, and they just kept singing like multiple songs. I think they were supposed to sing one song, and everybody was just so into it. Uh, but yeah, then going to Elvis's grave the next day, actually, and seeing that he was only, I think, 42 years old when he died. Um, and that was also a little like, wow, I can't believe these guys. They just seem like huge figures to live such a short life. And I think I know I'm older than that now, but uh, you're close. Uh, but anyway, um, uh, then, Joe, the last time I saw you in person was another group trip. And that was to uh -huh. Mexico City, my first and only time there. Uh, we had a bunch right of great friends. I made a lot of great friends through the people you brought together on the trip. Um, but, you know, the one thing, it's funny, Joe, I had some other people who were mutual friends of ours who ahead of the trip or even just after the trip, I said, hey, you should come on this trip to Mexico City. And they said to me, and, and by the way, I'm just I'm saying this as a little, uh, if you know Joe, you know Joe. They said to me, well, you know, I haven't really got a lot of details from Joe, like, I don't have like a budget and I don't have like the exact itinerary of what we're going to be doing. And which was actually the opposite of Ireland, right? You had like a, a pretty detailed itinerary for that. But I said to them, look, I've traveled with Joe a bunch of times and um, I'm just going to tell you, just trust Joe. It's going to be an amazing experience and you're going to meet all sorts of people because Joe goes places and just like, just spends like you had spent multiple trips in Mexico city well ahead of our trip. And all of a sudden we get there and you knew like all these like chefs in these boutique restaurants who um, we had these amazing experiences with. You took us to this Mezcal farm out in the countryside outside of Mexico City. I mean, it was just like this crazy experience. So anyway, I just wanted to say, you know, thank you for inspiring that because I try to on uh, my trips 
you know, strive to be a lot like you in those ways and going and seating the charting the course ahead of the other travelers that get there to try to make local connections. Cause I really do believe when you can meet local people in a place and have a lot more like local experiences, you could really like get to know a place a lot better. Like, and you've, you've done that a lot. Um, but you know, I, one of the things I wanted to ask is, you know, travel, I believe helps us, you know, think outside the box, see the world from a new perspective, all these sorts of great things. Um, and, and a lot of the trips you, you brought me on have done that and also brought people together and help you make connections with other people. But your life then, literally November of 2019, we went on that trip, Joe. And I think mm. I remember you talking on that trip saying, oh, I might go back to Ukraine. Like in our mind, there was no war in Ukraine then. There was nothing. It was just Ukraine. I had other friends that were visiting Ukraine around that time. They had wonderful experiences there. So, and you were like, oh yeah. And I think a couple couple people might, on that trip, I think even even went and visited you in Ukraine at some point in 2019 or somewhere around there. Um, so uh, I just wanted to ask though, all the travel experiences you've had in your life, and then you went around the end of 2019 to Ukraine and you haven't, you've traveled around Ukraine, but you haven't left Ukraine and, and you've been there. But how has that kind of prepared you for what you've experienced now over the last four years since I've seen you in person. Yeah. Well, it's hard to believe Mexico city. That was <laughs> the last time I was, you know, sort of, yeah, freely traveling around the world. Uh, I got, went to Sweden after that. And then here and uh, the, you know, when with Scythian, the Ukrainian American Irish gypsy folk rock <laughs> band or whatever it was, uh, I managed that for eight months, but actually the day that I escaped New York, which sort of set off these travels, you know, Jack Kerouac and on the road, he crossed the Bear Mountain Bridge in New York as he was escaping uh, and go, finding the American West or finding the American mentality. He crossed the Bear Mountain Bridge and I did in my car chase escape from Murdoch's security guys. But that day I was listening to this song I'd heard at a pub in New York. I found it on iTunes and it was a song called I Will Go and it had this great drum beat. And that's what got me out of a, uh, Fox News in that terrifying day, and a year later in Philly, I met the guys uh, and the girl, their sister. That they, uh, they had, um, I met these Ukrainians that had a, a band, and they, you know, we were talking, we became friends, and they gave me a CD, and I'm playing the song, and I realized it's the same song that I had escaped to, um, and so it's so strange that I would end up in Ukraine, not only in the pandemic but the war, because the day that I escaped Fox News. It was a Ukrainian-American band, uh, and their song that got me out of that, uh, and that set off the, these years of travel. And uh, Cisco, as I, when, especially when the full-scale, because the war started in 2014, uh, when Russia tried to stop the revolution here, um, to stop the f free people, um, when the full-scale invasion started, uh, I had these amazing contacts all around the world to help, and especially my friends who are bartenders, my secret network of bartenders. Uh, all around the world, uh, they rallied and they had fundraisers everywhere from uh, New York to Stockholm uh, to uh, to support Ukraine. Uh, and so those travels not only had made me into a different person, uh, made me more able to listen to others, but had we had an amazing network uh, to help uh, in this time, and then to help refugees as they were, uh, you know, leaving Ukraine, uh, or, or or to you know, hey, uh, I could call friends in uh, Copenhagen and say I need uh, uh, thermal scopes. For rifles, <laughs> can you can you find them? Uh, and so those travels had really prepared me. And um, when the pandemic started, I think I was happy to have a pause uh, from that travel because I've been traveling so much. 
And um, uh, but now in the war, I mean, it's it's weird. It's like the movie Field of Dreams. You know, the white line uh, crossing the field into into mo- you know, the old times into the modern times. And uh, uh, I talk with friends when they cross that border. It's kind of like leaving the movie. And uh, I was just talking. Mm. A friend and his wife, uh, Ukrainians, were in uh, Poland. Uh, for business and uh, it's hard for men to leave here but you can get permission and my friend said he went to a cafe in Krakow and he just started crying for 20 minutes like in Poland because it, it, it finally you have a chance to process it from the other side uh, I don't want to do that yet because I think as a reporter to have empathy I don't want to be a reporter that comes here like I'm looking at a scientific experiment I see this with a lot of the press to come here Oh, they write about it, and then they, you know, you can go go home or go to vacation. Um, I want my stories, my daily radio reports on WGN. I want when people hear my voice to hear the voice of what it's like to be here. And uh, and if I, you know, I could just leave, but then it becomes less authentic. And I think also I'd go crazy being away from this, you know, uh, from from the sense of purpose until the mission's complete. Uh, and so. Yeah, my travels prepared me for this, and uh, but now is the time. I mean, I, I think it was a time of preparation, uh, and I do. I wish I'd gone to some more places. I didn't really. I never got to experience much of Asia or Africa uh, because I would always. I would plan to, and every country I'd go to, I'd you know a three day trip would turn into three months. In this case, <laughs> four years in a pandemic and a war. Well, I think the kind of travel that you've done is really great, though, because it's. Um... You know, and, and you might have been one of the first people in my personal life that I kind of saw doing that where, um, you know, a lot of a lot of our travel, uh, including like the Scythian trip, right? You go you go to a place for a week and you you go around and you do the tours and you see the sites and, and that's great. But I think the ability to kind of like be somewhere longer, kind of slow travel, uh, if you have a type of job or or even a time in your life where you're able to be somewhere for a long period of time, maybe work remotely things like that. I know you were doing some of that stuff remotely as well. Uh, and you'd be able to sit in, you know, cafes and restaurants in Mexico City, and then just get to talk to the people locally. And just when also when you're there, like a longer period, and we could debate how long it is long enough. Is it a month? Is it three months? Is it a year? Um, but you can see how everyday life, right? You, you have to go to the grocery store, you got to maybe get on a public transportation, you know, things like that. And you get to kind of see how the normal person lives rather than just how the tourists experience a place. Uh, so it's really great. But, you know, Joe, you went there and, um, you know, like I said at the, earlier in the podcast, I had several friends that had mentioned, reached out to me and thought, maybe I might know somebody in Ukraine. Maybe I might have some connection there because, you know, part of what we're doing at Fearless Journeys is connecting innovators across the world. <laughs> um, and so um, strange enough, I, I had another. So I've had two people that have been on this podcast uh, that have actually um reached out to me to connect to you. They didn't know I knew you. I mean, they were just asking. And then I said, okay. So one of them was the one you mentioned. And that was Dan Weinberg, who's a YouTube guy, right? And um, and Dan spent some time over there, I think, in the latter part of last year. Um, and and I say that too publicly because he he was later, he didn't tell people what, when he was there, but he uh, he did post some things on YouTube. And he didn't come in as a typical reporter he has a really great YouTube tra- chat channel that helps people understand that slower kind of travel. And he didn't even want to get involved in what was going on uh, in the war necessarily in terms of, but, but in terms of just introducing people through his YouTube channel to um, everyday Ukrainians and just what is life like in Ukraine and things like that. So I thought he did a really great 
job putting kind of a human face to just, you know, who are Ukrainians in a sense. Um, the other person is somebody, I'm not going to mention his name, but what I am going to tell you is he was uh, a special guest on this podcast. And Joe, I wrote a, uh, speaking of writing, I wrote a book earlier this year that I published called The American Dream is a Terrible Thing to Waste. And the subtitle is 100 Agents of Innovation Shared Their Fearless Journeys in, oops, sorry. I just, for my cup, but anyway, um, uh, 100. That was, um, that was in the US, not Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. Luckily, that was over here. But anyway, sorry, I just uh, knocked some things over here on my desk as I was moving this book. But anyway, 100 agents of innovation share their fearless journeys in today's economy. And I think you might appreciate um, how I ended the last chapter of my book, not the conclusion, but the last chapter. Uh, this is for uh, the person who uh, I had connected them with you. I don't I, I know he made it to Ukraine. I don't know if you ever met him in person, but I know you communicated with him and he was help. You were helping. Um, he you, he was helping bring some supplies in and, and connect them with some some other people. But uh, <laughs> I actually ended the book this way because I I was trying to also convey uh, to the fact that people that are on this podcast. One of the reasons I really like entrepreneurs and this person is an entrepreneur is that they really are fearless in so many different ways. Um, but I said here, uh, through a series of text messages, I put this person in touch with a friend of mine who had been living in Ukraine over the previous three years because he was trying to help people in that country defend themselves from invading Russian forces. And Joe, it was really strange because just as I was finishing writing this chapter about this person, uh, I picked up my phone and I read a text because I had put you guys on a group text with each other. And I read a text from this person who said, we are headed back to the front lines, not sure where yet. And I put in the end of the chapter here. For those who might be wondering, I'll add one detail as of this writing. Uh, he had did, in fact, return safely back home. And, but I don't advise aspiring entrepreneurs to be this fearless. I only include this detail to remind you that being fearless is a trait that goes well beyond starting a business. It's a mindset of being action-oriented, of finding a way to be part of solving a problem, and of constantly be moving forward, even if you're not sure where the path is going to ultimately lead you. Entrepreneurs are fearless because they aren't afraid of, ta afraid of taking a risk. They chart their own course. So that's how my, my book ends. And for those who want to know who I wrote about, you can pick up the book on Amazon <laughs> and read that last chapter. But um, uh, anyway, Joe, I, I really do think this mindset of being fearless is um, you have taken it on at a whole new level of being there covering the war. Um, and even what you just said in one of your last responses there about you didn't just want to come in and go out like a, a person looking at animals in a zoo in a sense, but really kind of be part of it and uh, and understand and make friendships and, and help tell the story of the people around you. And, and hopefully a lot more Americans and people around the world can get a new perspective through your perspective which is, seems to me a, a renewed perspective as well, just being in the situation you put yourself in. Yeah, thank you, Cisco. Yeah, if you please follow along, ukrainianfreedomnews.com. We post uh, there. You can find YouTube and Instagram and Twitter links uh, to those daily uh, Chicago broadcasts with the great Bob Surratt in Chicago. And if anyone wants, uh, yeah, I, well, I mean, you can cross that border and come into Ukraine. And, uh, you know, it depends, you know, I mean, you know, we've seen many uh, people have, have come here in this time, uh, and it is, uh, especially if you're at a turning point, 
and and you feel maybe that you you, you need to find some purpose come here and uh get in touch somehow and we'll uh you can get in touch ukrainianfreedomnews.com but uh uh you know we'll make sure you know we you can't guarantee safety but you you can't anywhere you know one thing you realize you know all of the questions that human beings face in our lives uh we face every day here more intensely like we're all going to die we don't know when we're going to die that could apply anything you know you could anything could happen in america or anywhere but here it becomes the focus of every day uh, and so all of these things are intensified. Uh, so you can't run away from things maybe you've been trying to run away from. Uh, and so if you can come here, I, I say with an important caveat, bring something to help people. Don't just come here for yourself. Uh, we've seen a bit of that. Uh, but come here uh, to help. Uh, but you also will be helping yourself. And I think Ukraine is the best uh, self-help book. Uh, so that's my, my pitch for uh People who want to come to uh, the capital of freedom right now in the world. And uh, Cisco, thanks for taking this time to talk with me. And uh, uh, it's, uh, yeah, I hope we can check in again. Joe, and, Joe, uh, you're, in, you're in the war zone there. So I want to say thank you for taking the time. And um, I'll put all those links that Joe mentioned in our show notes here. So if you didn't uh, hear that, ukrainianfreedomnews.com, right? And on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, Joe Lindsley is everywhere and doing reports every day. Uh, from Ukraine. Um, and I, what I love about what you're doing with the WGN station in Chicago is they're like eight, 10 minutes long. Uh, you can literally add that to your uh, routine of listening to podcasts and things like that and, and just get Joe's updated perspective every day of the, that the war is going on. And hopefully, Joe, this war will come to a conclusion uh, soon. Uh, Ukraine will uh, be victorious in, in uh, protecting its freedom and its liberty and sovereignty. And and who knows? Maybe one day, fearless journeys will bring a will bring a trip there to to uh, a pr to celebrate that victory. Uh, much like we have, I have gone on travels to celebrate freedom in places like Prague and Budapest and all sorts of other places in Eastern Europe. And so, uh, keep uh, keep the faith, and we'll keep praying for you and uh, and supporting you. And um, and thanks again for being an agent of innovation in uh, the middle of honor. one of Thank the. You, one of the most, uh, yeah, conflicted areas in the world. So thanks, Joe, for being with us. Thank you all.